Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you, we have a great show today. My guest, you know, anytime I look at someone's IMDb page and they have over 100 credits, it gets you excited because you know they got a lot to talk about. And he's also written, directed, and starred in a movie. It was in 2014, and that's always good. And my guest is Brian Thompson. How you doing, Brian? Good. Good. How be ye? I'm good, man. Um, I want to start off with... A lot of stuff's going on in Hollywood right now with auditioning, self-taping, and all that. What's your what's your look on that? Because some people love it. Some people hate it. You've been around for a long time. So you remember when you had to go in the room and sell them. What What's your take on that right now? Because I'm getting different stories from both sides. I love it. I'm on the love side of the balance scale. Uh, I have been jealous of voiceover artists for two decades. <laughs> 20 years ago, they got to kick back, break out a microphone, hop in their walk-in closet, and do their voiceover audition. Welcome to the Scary Hour. This is Brian Thompson. And they get that they get that email off their MP3, and I'm like, crap, how soon are we gonna get fast enough internet that we get to do this? And and uh, I I would say before COVID, half it was close to half of my auditions were self tapes, and now it's a hundred percent. I have not been in a room since twenty twenty. Do you miss the room though, or was it something that you know for an actor? I would think you know I understand voiceover, but for you, there's certain roles. If you turn a certain way, they can go, oh man, that's what we wanted. But if you do a tape and they go. Eh, we don't like the look. I mean, what what is it? What do you, what's the pros and cons for being in the room? The only the only con that I would say is that when you show up on the set after they've hired you, you don't know anybody. Nice. It's, oh, you're the guy. You know, it's kind of like they pulled a <clears throat> box of cereal off the shelf, and and you know you're on the set, and they start pouring in the bowl without any sort of you know, general kind niceties, you don't know anybody. You know, I've heard other actors say, well, you don't get to play the room. You know, you don't get to dazzle them with your bullshit. Uh, I I was never much of a, you know, I, I was not a great charismatic force in the room. I was there to show you that I could do the job Thank you. If you have any questions, got it. Thank you for having me. Exit. Um, I don't know if that's a recommended technique or not, but I, uh, that was me. I went in there and, and showed them that, you know, gave them my take on the character. And if I, something I did, uh, and I still do, if I have a couple, I've even done three three different engines for the characters that I've done. And I, uh, one of my greatest auditions was, uh, if I can say that about an audition myself, did I just come off as being somewhat, uh, okay. No, uh, no, of course you did. You had a great audition. Went, You've had hundreds of them. I went in to audition for David Beard for Pass the Ammo. David has since, you know, gone on to his, his next uh, multiverse but I auditioned for the part of a uh, professional football player. And professional football players come in. How many varieties of professional football players come in? So I had three different. I said, this guy could be funny three different ways. And he's like, oh. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, right. Uh, okay. Well, why don't you show me all three? When I finished. He grabbed me by the bicep, drugged me out of the room into the producer's office and said, you're hiring this man. There and you I, go. <laughs> and, and I'm sorry he did that because I've never had such a fantastic, wonderful audition experience. You know, you walk out of the room and it's like, God, I think they did they like it. Did I screw the pooch? Uh, and, and, and so that was that made the end of every audition after that uh, anticlimactic. So, so how did you get into acting? What, what was your start? Were you? I know you, you played high school sports. I'm guessing you're a big guy. And were, were you always into theater, or what was your what, what got you into acting? 
What was the catalyst, the genesis, in the beginning? There was darkness. Uh, <laughs> I was, I've told this story before, but you know, I love telling this story. Um, I was on the swim team with Paul Delashaw in, at Mark Morris High School in the spring of 1977, Longview, Washington, Milltown, on the banks of the Columbia River, also a seaport, it's a town of about 25,000, uh, two high schools. My father taught at one of them. I did not participate in a spring sport. I was a football player, a swimmer, and in the spring I went fishing. Because we have, uh, it's, I don't know how the fishing is now. Mount St. Helens kind of scoured out a lot of the, the salmon beds. But uh, I asked Paul if he wanted to ride home from school because his house was on my way home and I, that was something I did frequently. And he did the, Brian, I'm auditioning for the play and there's a part you'd be perfect for. And to let you know how, how good of a, a, a selfless person Paul was, Paul went on to become a, a very successful pastor. He was, he was, he had been in drama all of high school and he was auditioning for the same play, he, the part he told me to audition for. And I got the part and he didn't. That was it. And uh, three of the girls that I, like adored in high school, Julie LaFaw, Betsy Johnson, and Marcia Jacobson, all three of these girls caused me to have butterflies and they were in the play. <laughs> and so I was, I, I went to play rehearsal with so much uh, joy and the play was very successful. It was a comedy, Coffin and Heart, you can't take it with you. I somehow, I have, I have a poster from that play in my living room, and I don't have a poster from any movies in my house. But you can't take it with you. And now that I'm 63 and, and I see that poster that says you can't take it with you, I'm so happy that that poster survived and that that's started the whole thing. Anyway, then the, the next step, Exodus, <laughs> if, 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 since we've left Genesis, uh, <laughs> I went to college to play football. First day of winter quarter, saw play notice for Guys and Dolls, a musical. You can sing happy birthday if you don't have a song prepared. So I went to the McConnell Auditorium at Central Washington University and I sang happy birthday. And I got the part of Big Jewel in the musical and I haven't stopped acting since. What was the reaction when, like, a football player comes in and starts, you know, and sings their play? You're a big guy. I mean, and back then, you know, football players are not like they are now, but they're six three. What was the reaction to the other actors? Were they intimidated by you? They're probably like, "Wait a second, this guy's like a football player. What's 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 he doing on our turf?" Exactly. There was a lot of trepidation. You know, they were, you know, kind of long prodding pole, kind of poking him, like, "Oh, what is that over there in that chair?" <laughs> And uh, and then the same thing was with uh, I had the same thing with the, the football team. The football team was they're kind of like oh well he's an actor, he's a thespian because after he's yeah he's an actor. So it, it was you know the hybrids, <laughs> the half breeds, half breed. That's all I ever heard. Uh, I, you know to to a wonderful extent, don't you feel? Doesn't everybody in high school and college feel a bit like a misfit? Well, yeah. We I, I always hung with different groups. I always was one of those, like a Zelig, like a Woody Allen Zelig. I could hang on this and hang on that. And, and you do, but I think it's something that's part of growing up. But it's just different because we get so regimented in high school and college. Like, you know, there's people in a frat, but there's people in another frat, or there's this. So I think it's good that you could parlay between both of them. Well, and at the time, also, I was a music major. I I was a, a piano major, so you know I was, I was parlaying, you know, in in three different arenas. Um, and I and I've said before that, you know, I think the music, hearing the music of how humans communicate is 
that's how I always approached it, especially comedy. Comedy has a lot of meter to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was a professional stand-up comedian for eight years, and I'm starting to get back into it now. And it, it's it's a whole different world. You know, when you're away from it, you when you look back into it, you're, it all comes back to you, though. It, it's all it's all the timing. It, it you use it in everyday life. Like you're an actor. You okay. So you're a standup comedian. I'm, um, I, I was arguing with a standup comedian yesterday about what is the best punchline for an old joke. And I, you know, a skeleton walks into a bar, says, give me a beer and a mop. Right. He's going, no, give me a, give me a sequence of seven and a mop. And I'm like, no, well, Mike, a beer Mike, no, it, it, the single syllable uh, alliteration with beer and mop is much funnier. It, it, it just takes place quicker. So now, professional comedian, tell me, it's beer. which is funnier. It's beer. It's beer. Uh, I'm going to tell you also be. why. Besides the timing, like the wording, a cigarette se- seven, it's a drink. It's on ice. It dro- you don't, yeah. you don't, you're not mopping up ice. But a beer is a 16 ounce. It pours right out yeah. and you mop it up. So you won on yeah. that one. It's good. So. Yeah, I mean, that's the way I've always delivered it. Give me a beer and a mop. Exactly. It's like the old joke, a grasshopper walks into a bar, bartender says, we have a drink named after you. And the grasshopper goes, you have a drink named Harvey? So, <laughs> so okay, back to your acting. So, you're in musicals, you're acting. When do you decide, decide that you're going to pursue acting as your career? Seminal moment of the Brian Thompson mythology. You know, if we if we all have a mythology, a mythos. I was paying for college by working as a pile buck. You know what a pile buck is? No. Almost nobody does. That's why I asked you so I could so that look of confusion can be transported to your audience. I uh, was building docks, bridges, and piers on the on the uh, Columbia River with Coast Marine Construction out of Portland, Oregon, and. They had offered me a job when I got out of school after my junior year of college. They offered me the job when I graduated in the spring, starting at $50,000 a year. And this is 1981. Uh, this, oh, this is the fall of 1980 that they offered the job. I graduated in 81. And I was walking across campus, and that, uh, the summer, prior to walking across campus i'm a little out of order that's normal for me being out of order i had had to use a jackhammer a lot because we were we had to demo the a concrete dock so we could put more pilings through a hole and it was there was a bunch of rebar and it beat the shit out of my arms which i think are still recovering here you know 50 years later and um see oh they're still on that call well (laughs) <laughs> the uh, uh, so I'm walking across campus it's fall and they're jackhammering there's some guys doing a jackhammering on a on a sidewalk and you know that jackhammer has that percussive and that that hit me in the stomach and I almost vomited it was like what um, brings, makes my eyes water a little bit thinking about it now and I Looking back on it, I think it's my one and only anxiety attack in my entire life. I started sweating. I went back to my dorm room, and I'm talking to myself. What the hell happened, Brian? Why, you don't react like that. And just like this voice is like, you don't want to take that job. No, you don't. What do you want to do? I don't know what I want. You know what you want to do. You want to be an actor. Fuck, yeah, but I can't. I'm in Ellensburg, Washington. How the hell are you going to... How the hell are you going to be an actor in Ellensburg, Washington? Nobody pays. So, well, you're, you're going to, you know, find out how to be a professional actor. Well, I don't know much about that. Well, so I, I, I sat down right there and I wrote a letter to the Screen Actors Guild and Actors Equity and asked them if they knew any uh, recommended schools. They get those letters all the time. I've since learned they don't recommend any schools, but they recommend books that do recommend schools. They said there was this one book called Acting Professionally, 
And I went to the library in Ellensburg, Washington at Central, and they had the book. They had this one copy of Acting Professionally by Dr. Robert Cohen at the University of California, Irvine. And I read that book, and at the end, there was 10 schools that he recommended, one of them being his. So I applied to all 10 of the schools. And Dr. Robert Cohen, whose book I read, gave me a full ride to the University of California, Irvine for the next three years. That was after an audition. I had to, I had to get my ass to San Francisco. And I auditioned on stage at the San Francisco Opera House. And about two weeks later, I got a letter that changed my life. So you get you get the ride, you're learning, you're getting the craft down. When you get out, what's your step? Because I know a lot of times acting schools, they teach you the craft, which is great. They teach you that. But they don't teach you, hey, here's how you get an agent. Here's how you audition. How did you learn that? Because it's something that it's it's overwhelming for someone who, who's young and all of a sudden you're in California from coming from Washington. What was your, what was your course of action? Yes. And that hurdle in my experience is so daunting that half of the people that have this training don't make a wholehearted attempt at getting over it. It, it scares the crap out of you. So uh, we got to go back to central to tie this in, we're back in Ellensburg, Washington, where my father is furious that I'm a music major. He's a teacher. He's seen his salary uh, not remain commensurate with the people that work in the mills in Longview, Washington. You know, he was he had a above middle income salary, and now he's at the lower income salary. And the guys at the mills that you know didn't have his education. We're making more money than he was. So he, he was very frustrated for, you know, not having the money that, and he, he, he commercial fished during the summer to try to make more money. And it, it did bring a bit more income, but it, it was a weight, you know, on the family, the, the lack of this money. And he wanted me to major in business. And I did. I dropped my music major and I got a degree in business management. And that was stifling. Oh my God, stifling. However, I'm back at, in graduate school and I'm looking after my first year there, I was uh, starting the second year and I'm looking at, okay, golly, I'm gonna be, the year after this one, I'm gonna be out in the cold. Well, how am I gonna make a living? Okay, well, Acting's a business. Everybody comes to school. The lecturers come and say that. Okay, well, what are the barriers to entry to this business? Well, Brian, you have to survive an audition. So right then and there, in the fall quarter of my second year of the three-year program, and due to UCI's proximity to Hollywood, if I could skip class, if I could get to an open call, if I go audition for an equity waiver play, if I had auditioned for the chorus in an equity musical, I would go. I would just take off and go. Because I knew that the biggest barrier to me getting a job is surviving the audition. And I wanted to be an actor so badly that I was so nervous at auditions that I know that many, many times the best audition got left at, at home in, in the bedroom where I was memorizing lines. Because I couldn't, I couldn't conjure that creative spirit over the just the, the deluge of nervousness. So how do you get good at taming dragons? You tame more dragons. You go practice. So I was uh, sneaking up to Hollywood, and I'd been to about a dozen auditions, and crap, the unexpected happened. They offered me jobs. So I was able to do... Uh, I got the, the job of the evil villain Taurus Mordor in the Conan show at Universal Studios Tour. And so I spent the summer in Hollywood after my second year. And then I got an agent. And by the time I graduated from college, I had my SAG card, an agent, and I had three SAG jobs. And I had made $50,000 my last year in college, which was almost the exact sum that I had been offered for the construction job. See that? that so, 
that was and so there was no transitory period and i remember there was uh, seven men in the program and that's the big question that everybody asks you when you're in your third year well where are you going to go when you get out you know because you're an actress well i'm going to go try seattle i'm going to go try denver i'm going to go try i'm going to go to new york and I don't remember any of the other seven having a good answer when they were asked that question. And then it would get to me. So, Brian, what are you going to do? Uh, what I've been doing for the past year. <laughs> I'm going to continue going to auditions and hopefully get hired. So you're working long. You're getting your side jobs. How did Cobra come about? Because Cobra is a movie where I graduated college in 86. It came out in like May. That was just as we were getting out. And we all wanted the Stallone sunglasses. And we all, because he was such a force yeah. of nature. And that was a you. Everyone loved Stallone movies. Everyone wanted to see him. How did that part come about? And what was that like for you to sit there and go, holy crap, this is a Stallone movie. I'm going to be in a, a successful movie. It was, it came in by degrees. Uh, that was a, just the the first audition was probably in June or July of 85. And that was almost exactly a year after I had graduated from college. And, you know, the initial audition is just a reading with the casting director. And I got sent the material. And I was, I, I, went, I looked at it cross-eyed. I had never had any dialogue close to that that I was supposed to develop a human being under. I mean, I had no idea. It scared the shit out of me. I read this dialogue. You can't stop the the new world. Your filthy society will never get rid of people like us. Only the strong survive. I, I remember some of the lines. It's like, what is in this guy's head? You know, what... What experiences has he had that makes him believe this 100% that he's going to say it with that much commitment? I had no idea. So I I wrote a whole, and it's probably in a box in the attic somewhere, I wrote a whole thesis for, for this guy's society. And that gave me some grounding for this outlandish dialogue. And I don't know if you've seen the other interviews I've done, but it was it was six more auditions and a screen test. Two of them were, with, the next one was with the director, then it was the director-producer, then it was Stallone, then it was the director-producer again, then it was Stallone some more. And then there was a, the seventh audition was a full-blown screen test that they spent tens of thousands of dollars on, two 35-millimeter cameras, the same crew that shot the movie, the same wardrobe people, same makeup, lights. And... Uh, and and then the and the I've told this story before too, but it was the greatest was the greatest learning of getting a job that you could ever have in your entire life. And let, let me set the stage for you. I mentioned earlier that I was playing the evil villain Taurus Moore at the Conan show, even as the studio's tour. Well, we had been doing that job now for just over a year. We had all done several hundred shows together, and to set the stage even further. I was on stage 11 minutes, four times a day with three two-hour lunches. So everybody in the cast had three two-hour lunches. Okay, and we've been working together for a year. We got to know each other really well. I mean, we were, it, it, what, what happened backstage at the Conan show made Animal House look like kindergarten. And I, I'm serious, we, we loved each other we went to the hospital with each other. The show was very dangerous. Uh, we, God, we helped each other through breakups and 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 and, and all of us were kind of you know we're we're young, athletic. You know, each of us getting a job here and there. And I came off stage, and, and the, everybody in the cast had been writing this series of auditions over the course of a month with me and they all knew that i had had a screen test and in this place it was after the show was over it's bedlam backstage you're all amped up you've just been in a sword fight 
bang, and you go backstage and you're just ready to dive into the fray. Not this day. I walked off stage. I got up to the second store dressing room, second store E dressing room, and it was dead silent. And Lori Benson, the makeup artist, was was on the phone, and she said, Brian, your agent's on the phone. The whole cast is there. Okay, now imagine this. It's Conan in a leather loincloth. <laughs> Red Sonia in a leather bikini. Three giant warriors. One of, I think the shortest one was like 6'5". One of them literally was a Mr. Universe. Okay, so it's <clears throat> walking into the, the Coda, the Barbarian. They're all dead silent. And one of, one of them is an old wizard with long, long gray hair. Callias the wizard. And she said, Brian, it's your agent. No, I, it's hard to tell the story. It's so much fun. So I took the phone. I said, hi, Cynthia. She said, Brian, you got the job. And I went, I got the job. And the place just exploded <laughs> like as much glee. Because we all got the job. I, I got tackled on the floor. Red Sonia in the leather bikini was rubbing her tits in my face. Lori was on top of me. They're pounding on me. They're beating because we did it, you know, because I did it. They could do it too. It was just glee. You know, the phone was on the floor. It was, it, it was so much excitement and effervescence and joy and love all. I mean, I could have been home alone and got the call at, you know, seven o'clock that night, but it happened right there in the dressing room now, for one of the greatest, absolutely the greatest learning of I'm getting a job ever. Now, when you get cast, when, when the happiness and this great time goes away, do you start getting a little nervous? Because all of a sudden you're going, you're going, holy crap, I'm going on a Stallone movie. This ain't Conan at Universal. This is a big budget uh, where, you know, what was going through your head? And then how did you decide, how did you deal with it? Well, my, my initial thoughts were, you know, how to pull off this character. You know, there was, I had a lot of questions about just, you know, I had, I had made up my own story about who these people were, but the script was really light on uh, backstory. <laughs> That's being kind. <laughs> and so my, I, you know, I started this investigation to try to get a conversation about, you know, who is this society of guys and what exactly are we doing? Because I want... I want the armature for this character to be as solid as possible. Those conversations didn't go anywhere. So that was kind of confusing. And then, uh, I, I've said this before, the director was a psychopath and it, it was honestly, it broke my heart. And I didn't really realize that till after it was over. I, I was, you know, I was, a, listen, Anybody who sees this, I am 100% grateful for the job. Uh, to, to be given that opportunity was literally the opportunity of a lifetime. But, you know, I thought Stallone was there for the underdog. He was the symbol of the underdogs of the world, and he wasn't. There was some, there were some things that came up involving falsified time cards, and, and I didn't get backed up on it. And that... That broke my heart. I mean, the, the production was trying to save a thousand dollars on a forced call. I made fifty thousand dollars making that movie. Stallone was the first actor to be paid twelve million dollars, and the production company is trying to make me falsify a time card for a for a thousand bucks. I mean, that just broke my heart. It was what the f you know what the f really really. So I, I was really grateful for the opportunity, but that kind of shenanigans, you know, well, shenanigans, alleged criminal, you know, uh, yeah. Anyway, that was my experience. I got yelled a lot. I got yelled a lot at by George Cosmatos. George Cosmatos said goodbye to me by saying, this was his goodbye. He looks up at me, he's very short, chain-smoking Greek man with a heavy accent and bad teeth. He looks up at me and goes, you had been very good on this film if you would have listened to me. That's how he said goodbye. So 
I got it. You know, I have done low budget movies that were like working on Moon 44 with Roland Emmerich over in Germany. Low budget, but a solid script. No comparison in the the love put into those productions. Now, when 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 you get done Cobra, does that sour your view on Hollywood a little bit? Because you're sitting there. You're expecting oh, not, this at all. not at all. Not at all. I absolutely able to see that this is completely personnel oriented. Um, I was really mystified at how little concern there was for, uh, you know, real life justification of these characters. I mean, Stallone's supposed to be a. Uh, you know, this isn't a superhero movie. Stallone's supposed to be an LA cop, and this is supposed to be based on people that actually live. I still don't know why we're standing in an empty swimming pool banging axes. No idea. I asked. Nobody would tell. Bang the axes. Get in the pool. Cosmatos would yell. Yeah. So after that, you're acting away. And I read somewhere that you loved your role in Key West. And that's a okay. comedy. Now, now before that, were you doing a lot of comedy? What was your what, what did you What was your background? I mean, you're you're a big guy, so you're getting a lot of action stuff. But did you, in your heart, I mean, every actor was of a role. But did, were you like, man, I want to do some comedy? Well, uh, just a side note on this big guy action stuff. Nobody knew anything. Nobody ever mentioned this in college or in acting school. Oh, you're going to be great for. Uh, <laughs> In action movies, there's no action. There's no action movie parts in in the best plays ever written. Now, maybe they're getting it figured out with technical stuff on Broadway right now. I hear they're going to do a musical of Spider Man or something. But uh, I saw I saw Harry Potter in London. Special effects, okay, kind of okay. Um, not as groundbreaking as Phantom of the Opera. Uh, so. Ask me the question again. I said, were you excited to do you see your role? You love the role in a Key oh, West. Yeah. But, but the thing is, you were used to getting the action yes. hero. You said you're not used to that. How do you, I mean, when you, it's a, you're right, it's an eye-opening experience for you because you're like, well, wait a second. Yeah, my brain was popcorning. Well, so I did several comedies in college. Or the very first, what got me into this whole thing, if we remember back to the chapter of Genesis, caught Kaufman and Hart comedy, You Can't Take It With You, uh, Russian ballet instructor. And the, my friends that knew me in college and graduate school said, Brian, if you're going to make a living, you're going to do it in comedy from the comedic parts that we had done at college. And I, and I really thought that that was what I would end up doing. But, you know, you take the jobs as they get doled out to you. You see, I have no, I don't know if three times in my life I've been able to pick between two jobs. Three times in almost 40 years, pick between two jobs. Maybe. I, as I think of it right now, I can only think of one day when I was offered. I can think of a second one. I, I, Dragonheart and, and uh, Under Siege 2 where I was offered both of those that conflicted. Um, so the action stuff was was definitely more of an introduction, uh, something I, I was not used to. And I, I wish, you know, I wish there would be more comedies. I'm actually working on putting the comedies together to have a comedy reel right now. Because that is, uh, that's where I started. Do I miss it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I really do. Like, I think be, doing a, a half-hour sitcom for a few years would be, what a kick in the pants. Really, you, you know, half half the year or better, you're, you're working on laughs every week versus... You can't stop the new world. Now, what, what about back to Key West? What did you like about the character on Key West, the sheriff? What was it that made it something that you really enjoyed? His headspace. He, he literally believed that he had no enemies on the planet. 
Think about that. If you right now believed that every, you walk out the door of your house, you go into the post office, you go into the bank, you're in a 7-Eleven, that everybody you meet is full of love, or if they're not, they just need a liver recentering and you can help them. Do you believe that right now? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's your headspace. That's almost, that's, you know, that's almost Jesus. He was, he really believed that his personal heroes were Buddha, uh, Ted Nugent, and Davy Crockett. Those were his three personal heroes. And he rode a bicycle in Key West. I wore, wore Birkenstocks. I, 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 I fed my prisoners raw broccoli juice. We did Tai Chi on the beach with beautiful girls. <laughs> it was, I mean, that was, that was the job. And to this day, you know, people say, well, you know, you made your, you made your money in action adventure. Uh, no. That was the most lucrative job of my entire career. 13 episodes of Key West. What happened? Which, did it, why didn't it get picked up? I mean, it's, if, if you love the role, so you think you're an actor, you know what's good. And, you know. we, uh, there was a regime change at, at, at Fox. And then also we had some scripts that were not as strong as other scripts. They were, we were struggling to get the scripts together. Uh, they... You know, the, when the producer and writers come to you and start asking you for ideas, you, you get a little scared. You know, we were billed as the northern exposure of Florida. And they didn't have a through-line Bible that that was as polished as they, should, they, they could have if they had the right, you know, people. So... It was more kind of situational comedy versus the, you know, nowadays the, the series that go on really seem to have a through line of the plot that carries on. And a lot of our episodes were kind of standalone. And so that diminishes a bit of the tension. So why the show could have been better, honestly. It, it could have been better. So, you know, you've, you've had this great career, and you've been in some iconic shows. Tell me about your relationship with Star Trek, because you've done, like, three different versions of that. And those, I've heard those fans, if you meet fans, they would know every single one of your credits to the, I mean, oh. I heard those fans are so passionate. And for an actor, that must be great. Well, it's nice that they are that into it. But there, you, you also get caught like a deer in a headlight when they ask you about a situation in one of those shows that you were in, and you have no idea what they're talking about, because they their research is so much better than yours, and you don't know the whole show, because you're kind of, you know, monocular, focused on your own character and what you did. So you can get, yes, it's nice that, that it has that, especially that, you know, the Star Trek series, that they were so, that they all have lessons. And, and, and a lot of that lesson is filled with a lot of hope. And that I somehow got invited back to that production five times is, yes, I'm, I'm thrilled that that occurred. And not, and not one of those jobs was given to me. I had to go audition for everyone. You know, not one said, hey, Brian was good at this. Let's give him this part. No, I had to go in there in the room every time, all five. But you're, you're part of history. Now, also, the X-Files, you recurred on that. Was that, when you did the X-Files, were you, was that a one-off? And then they liked you? And I'm sure you, they didn't, you didn't have to go back and keep auditioning because they liked you. But tell me about how the X-Files came about. Because once again, you're on these shows that are, have this iconic feeling. Well, the X-Files thing, there's, you know, there's debate about exactly what happened on that, on, with my character. And, and the truth of it is, I don't know, it, you know, it's, it's, it's like the X-Files, the truth is out there. You know, so the truth on this one's out there. But I got, 
It's one of the only times when I said it, and I got somebody fudged the truth and was manipulating me, and I, I kind of threw a bit of a temper, temper tantrum. And it's the only time in my life I've ever done that. I was told that this character was a fleshed out alien, had a lot of dialogue, because I had just come home from doing Dragonheart, and I didn't need the money, so I wanted the part to be something substantial, you know, an actor's part. And they said, Brian, he gets to do, he's got, in the second script, he's got all these scenes uh, where, he's, he, where we learn about who he is, and, and but the first script, he doesn't have any lines. Fuck. Huh? Sure. Really? It's a two-parter, and there's not even a second script yet? That just sounded kind of fishy. So, when I got there, they had told me that I could, I was up for two feature films at the time where they needed my hair long. So I said, look, you can, you can slick it back, but you can't give me a crew cut. Well, I get in there and the guy's trying to give me a crew cut. And I'm like, hold on a second. You, you gotta leave it, you gotta leave it a couple inches long so I can flip it back. You just, just, just gel it back. Doesn't, that's not much different than that in a crew cut. And the funny thing is, the crew cut's my favorite haircut. I, I, I do a crew cut at least once or twice a year. I love it. You know, <laughs> you're done. But for these other parts that they said I was still a bit up for, they wanted the hair left, you know, to be kind of more normal. Well, anyway, that turned into a big thing between, you know, Polaroids and fax machines. And they want it shorter. No, it's not. My agent says you can't cut it any shorter. They're, they're, they're applying pressure to me. You got to cut it shorter. And finally, I, I said, to, I, I honestly, I walked out of the, my agent said, no, it's staying this long. That's it. And that's the, that's what you told us. And it's wrong for you to be putting pressure on us. And this producer, Bob Goodwin was, he, I felt sorry for him because he was getting pressure from LA and, and I felt bad. You don't want to, you don't want there to be any bad feelings on a set. And so the next morning I get to the set and I don't know where I got this idea. It's funny. I, it wasn't uh, this nice second, second guy takes me to the set. And I like, I, I it's funny. A couple of times in my life I've done this. I said, hey, I forgot my script for the second episode. Could I look at yours for a second? And he goes, oh, sure. And, and in two minutes, I had the script for the second episode that they assured me hadn't been written. So I flipped through it. Character is identical. This goes around stabbing people in the neck and goes home. So I get to Bob Goodwin, who we had, had a few words with the night before. I and I said, Bob, I know you've never said this, but I was told the second script hasn't been written. I've got the second script. There's the characters identical to the first. Tell you what, my character morphs, right? I, I morph. You go, yeah, absolutely. So, well, morph me into somebody else and send me home. I, I, I don't want to be here. I've been lied to. And it just somehow the energy went wrong. I'm sorry. I, I don't, I don't mean to be a, I don't, but let's, let's call it a day. And I've never done this ever, before or since. But I was just furious. And because uh, you know what happens when you get lied to is it's such a such a drain on your energy. It kills your creative spirit. So he goes, Brian. Well, I don't know anything about this. That's not that's not what I've been told. Uh, let me see what I can do. So he comes back and he says, Brian, how about if we write you? a scene with David Duchovny on the submarine. I'm like, let me see it. <laughs> so I'm just sitting in my room and I'm not going to makeup. I'm, I'm serious about this. They want me to get in ready to shoot. I'm like, I, I need to go home. So shit, 45 minutes later, this whole scene shows up with David Duchovny on the submarine. It's pretty good. It, it, it ties me 
to the mythology of the X-Files. And there was nothing in there that had anything to do with his sister or before I threw this tantrum that morning. And I do not recommend throwing a tantrum. I I have never thrown a tantrum. I I can think of a second time because they brought me the stunt guy's robe because they couldn't find his robe. So they let him wear mine and it was completely covered with his sweat. And they wanted me to put it on. So I said, yeah, I'll put it on. And when it's washed, I mean, he picked it up. and I was like, oh, I said, no. Anyway, um, so that's how I ended up on the X-Files and got back, asked back for seven more seasons. That's crazy. Now, you did write and direct a movie. And I want to know what made you take on that. That I mean, you're, you're acting and you're writing, directing and acting in it, which... You know, you, it has to be taxing. But what what sat there? Did you were you writing the whole time as you were acting, and then finally you said, "I'm ready," or how that come about? I I've written some scripts that went nowhere, and you know, after to me, it's a very it's kind of an esoteric story. But to me, the absurdity of how little, uh, you know, actual thought and drama was being put into the action adventure films that I'd worked on with these major action adventure stars. To me, it struck me as funny. And, and, you know, I talked with my friend that said, you know, if I've witnessed so many bizarre things that have nothing to do with filmmaking and all to do with star egos, that it, it's at the point of absurdity that it, to me, it's funny. And to my friends, it was funny because and so that was the genesis of of uh, the Extendables, which originally was called Action Hero, and I wish we would have kept that name, just called Action Hero. And we tried, you know, we, we had this clever idea of piggyback marketing on the on the on the Expendables, which but I had reservations about, but we wanted to try to sell the thing to recoup some of our our dollars. But that was the genesis for the Extendables. Was just about everything in that story is true, just not for the same. Just not one person committed all this backstage behavior. So that's when you sat down, you just started writing it, and you just—it's basically a retrospect on your career in a "fuck you" kind of way. Like, hey, here's how it really is. It wasn't. It, it was was that not meant to be any fu about it? it there was just uh, because I. I certainly have respect for what Stallone has done and and Van Damme's fighting ability, but that there was there was not near as much time spent on the drama part of it, on the other part of the equation. That these movies these movies are they've done fantastic movies, but they could be better. And when you and when I tried to get involved in the conversations that would make them a little better, you just shut down. They don't want to hear it. Let's let's add two more pages to the chase scene. I I don't know about you, but when I'm watching chase scenes and fight scenes anymore, I thank God for fast forward button. All you need to know is who wins at the end. Who does the car crash? Or do they do they get away? I'll ask you this then: fight scenes. What's one of your? Everyone says they live is one of the best fight scenes. What what is one of your favorite fight scenes? As someone who's been in fight scenes, what is one of your favorite? Not what you're in, but what you've watched. Oh, it's got to be Stallone in the Rocky movies. Um, although those fights are really dated now, but God, I, you know, when I, a fight scene where you're just like your heart's pounding out of your chest. It definitely was the Rocky movies. I don't remember any specific moves, but I remember having, I remember my heart pounding through those, watching those movies, maybe because I was younger, but they also were very well put together. The, uh, the fight scenes, I think that also the UFC has kind of erased what used to be good fighting scenes because if you follow the UFC at all, you realize how, Oh my God, that's schlocky. The UFC is what works. I mean, those guys, the, the technical battle that goes on. Are you, do you UFC at all? I don't. I, I don't really check it out. I, I, I've seen it. I know. I know what you're talking about, though. The, the level of chess moves that those fighters are involved in will blow your mind. 
That's why that's why it takes often a decade of study for those guys to be competitive. Because if you don't counter this move, if you don't counter this hand on your bicep when his left leg is forward, you're dead. You're toast. If you don't have the counter, and then if you don't, and then if he counters with this move, you got to counter with that move, and then you got to counter with this move. The the intellectual layering of UFC on top of unbelievable physical conditioning and training. Yeah, the UFC, to me, the UFC is kind of a race movie fight scenes. Now, what's, what's your favorite fight scene you've been in? Oh. Well, I have never been asked that question before. So now you get to find out how long it takes me to think of something. <laughs> <laughs> um, favorite fight scene I've ever been in. Holly. Where he had fun was favorite. I'm sure if you had fun, it was your favorite. I had fun, was it my favorite? I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with zero. I'm sorry. Not and, and the reason the reason is doing fight scenes is a bit scary. You have a lot of responsibility to make it look great, but at the same time, you don't want to hurt anybody. You know, if you're in our training, which I've since learned is different than training in other schools, if somebody's getting hurt, you're doing something wrong. There's other schools out there that you could beat the shit out of everything but, but the face. And they do that for some of these movies, which boggles my mind, which is totally unnecessary. So fight scenes are dangerous. And so there's a there's pressure. There's pressure in, in, in shooting those scenes that that is not enjoyable. You know, it's not like it's not like learning a dance and then just getting to do the dance start to finish over the course of three minutes. It's 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 highly technical, and 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 people are worried. You know, people get hurt in fight scenes all the time, and I've seen some. You know, I've seen a lot of people need the medics after take one and take two. Have you ever suffered any serious injuries on set? I mean, through your career or something? I mean, is there a list of injuries or have you been pretty lucky? Nothing nothing that sent me to the hospital, but um, I've seen people die. That was bad. Um, the, the most Stallone hit me the hardest I've ever been hit. He, he pistol whipped me on Cobra. He caught me with the, with the butt of his pistol. That's the hardest I've been hit. That I've been uh, the worst I've been hurt was special effects on Cobra. They, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a that's a story worth telling. In the scene where I reach for Brigitte Nielsen through a manhole cover, I reach for her. Shalonchus, you know the he's gonna. <laughs> well, I I pull away and run, and just before we're getting ready to roll, I'm looking at the squib hits on this deck. It's a it's a lattice, you know, lattice like this deck, you know, crisscross hatch. You know, they punch they'll punch out a deck and stretch it, and that becomes a see-through walkway because that the way they do that it, you can't slip on it because the, the the metal will you know dig into your soles but you can see through it well they've they've drilled holes in it and they put this you know the, these charges these bullet hit charges and there's bondo on the back of them you know what bondo is no bondo's a plastic putty that sets up in five minutes and you can feel they use it uh, to fill dents on cars. If you know what Bondo is and you see a big dent on a car, you can say Bondo. It, it, it's a joke. It's That makes some people laugh. 
Makes me laugh. Not as much Still. as the mop. There's <laughs> <laughs> your fear in the mop. I'm going to cut that clip out and send it to Mike. Um, so I'm, I'm down on my hands and knees, okay? <laughs> down on my hands and knees, and I'm looking right at this Bondo hit. It's right next to my, underneath my neck. And they're like, okay, quiet on the sound. Roll sound. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Um, hey, excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> This bot, these charges are going to go off, right? I said, I don't see any on the equal and opposite reaction. I mean, that Bondo's got to go up in the sky, doesn't it? I mean, and George Cosmatis, what's going on? What are you doing? I said, well, I, I don't know any these, these these special effects. You know, these bullet hits are here. They got Bondo on the back of them. And I, I think they got to blow up. And so... Cosmata starts yelling at me for delaying filming, and it's a special effects shot. Nobody said anything to me about these Bondo hits. So there's this big discussion. Duncan Henderson, the, the AD, comes over, and they work it out. And they say, okay, well, Brian, you know what? Uh, yeah, that, 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 it's soft plastic. Um, we want you to run like this. This, this was the solution. And that will protect the bottom of your face. So your arms crossed. You're going to run with your arms yeah. crossed. Nor any normal person would run like this, right? <laughs> Get the fuck out of there. When you pull your head out, throw your arms like this and run. I'm like, really? <laughs> this is it, and this. You think about how poorly thought out that is, and you're on this, you know, sixty million dollar movie. You want me to run like that? Okay. So I ran like that. I did it. I I. Fuck, I wouldn't do it again. Ran like this, right? They yell cut at the end of the take. And the front of my leather jackets covered with blood. Exactly what I said would happen, happened. That Bondo shot up and shot. I ran and it shot right through the hole, right through here. Nails me in the bottom of the chin and just, just, like I'd been hit with a shotgun. It was com completely bloody all the way through here. So that can happen to you when people haven't thought it out. And I, I called it. And I walked, I walked right up to George Cosmatos afterwards. I didn't say anything to him. I just stared at him. God, I want to... I've never punched anybody in the face, but he so deserved it. He is responsible for my safety. Oh yeah. And so is the AD, and so is the stunt coordinator, and so is the special effects guy. And they say, "Here, run like this." You know, seriously, to all you guys, fuck you. Well, there you, you know, go. Almost forty years later, <laughs> seriously, that you had me do that, I could have lost an eye. If I'd have looked down when I ran, I could have lost an eye. Seriously. So that was 40 years ago. Let's flash forward to now. What have you been doing recently? I know you were on 911. You did a movie with Denzel. What's been going on for you? That is what's going on. That is what's going on. We're looking forward to new episodes of 911 where Captain Vincent Gerard gets to tell people about the good old days at the 118. Now, do you like getting all suited up when you do that? Do you suit yes, up? Yes. I love being a fire captain. That is, and surprising adrenaline hits when, like one time we rolled up on a fire and, and they've got the fire, the building's burning. We're downtown LA. There's two fire trucks coming in opposition to each other. There's a drone in the air getting this shot of us all rolling up. And then the drone drops down and delivers a line. I, I, I mean, just coming down that street with the sirens on and the lights on. It's, it's, it puts you there. It puts you there in the, in the, the seat and the, the boots and the fire. So that, it, having the, being in charge of that, being in charge of your men, being in control, this is my firehouse. Have you, have you seen the uh, 911? My wife watches it religiously. The I have firehouse. Not. This firehouse is gorgeous. 
It is a beautiful place to go to work. Where do you shoot at? Do you shoot on Paramount? Where, where do you shoot? Fox? It is. They apparently, somebody who had a large car collection, they would never say exactly who, but who has a large car collection in the Burbank area. I don't I can't think of I can't think of anyone. But he used he used to go to the uh the the deli right there. I used to live in Burbank. He used to go right across Pinocchio's. He used to always be at Pinocchio's, the man you're talking about that we don't know who it is. If it is him. Uh, but his car collection would not fit in this building. This building would only hold about maybe thirty cars. But maybe maybe it was a it's got a beautiful loft, kitchen Beautiful bathrooms, dining area. Uh, it's a beautiful place to go to work. It's in the, it's in Glendale, right, uh, right up south of the, uh, of the one thirty four. Okay, his was over more. His was off Magnolia, so it's a different place. Yeah, and they they apparently found it, and the guy agreed to have his car stored elsewhere, and they it's been the one eighteen now for five years. And now, do you have any uh, episodes coming up? Not that I know of. So and that's how that's how the, the that's exactly what happened with the X Files. You know, he did one episode, and then the, then the next year they call him and say, "Hey, Rival to me that they, they, you know, they didn't just write the script, and they, they call you up a week before and ask you if you're available." And every single time the X Files called, I was. And in those years, I I did you know several projects out of the country. <laughs> they just call you up. Yeah, I'm available. Okay, and it's nice. You know, I got to thank. If I want to thank somebody for career longevity, I got to thank the Screen Actors Guild. Anybody watching this who's contemplating about doing non-union movies, don't do them, or you will be damaging your future if you seriously want to have a career. Because there are some years that I would not have health insurance if it wasn't for residuals and i wouldn't have the option right now to take any part i want to if i didn't have a, a pension because that's that's the first time in my life where it was so wild getting used to oh my gosh i have a regular check every month holy crap and it's enough to live off of. Wow. That's what they say. Now, I got one final question. After all these years, what has kept you in the business? Is it just the pure love of acting? I mean, what is, because everyone knows being an actor isn't like, you know, it's a tough life. You know, you have your roles and you have a pension now, but you had to work your ass off to get there. But what has kept you in the game this long? For sure, the adrenaline hits. You know, when I do self-taping, you know, I hit record on my camera and the heart starts beating faster. So as long as that keeps happening, I'm going to keep trying out for these parts. Now, I'm I'm not auditioning as much as I used to because there's certain parts where I'm like, I don't need to repeat myself. Um, if it doesn't have some new nuance that I that I think that I can uh, add dimension to a dimension that I haven't got to play with, uh, I'm I'm probably not going to take the part unless, of course, it's for the Cohen brothers. Uh, you know, I'm a little nod to Macbeth. I mean, I'll yeah, or uh, or Damien Giselle. Damien, I thought I was going to be in musical theater, okay? I know you love musicals, Damien, if you happen to watch this. <laughs> I love Babylon. Can I ask you, did you see everything everywhere all at once? Okay, I did not, but I'm going to tell you, my wife who watches a lot of TV and movies, she put on, I was going, I was going out somewhere. It was a Saturday afternoon, and she put on everything, and I came back, and the channel was changed. And I'm, she's someone who watches, and I said, I thought you were watching that. She lost interest after 30 minutes. She she just, I don't know. You know what? I, I shit you not. On the way to play golf yesterday, I called a very successful director friend of mine. And I'm going to put Sheldon Lettich on the spot. <laughs> and said, Sheldon, tell me that I'm adults because I I couldn't get through any everything anywhere all at once. 
He's like, Brian, I tried to get through it twice too. I couldn't. So then I go to the golf course. Okay, this is Monday. This is the day after Oscars. And I say, Patrick, Mike, tell what's going on with everything everywhere all at once? I don't I, I couldn't it was noisy to me. And and they just shrugged their shoulders and said, I don't get it. I we don't we absolutely do not get it. Now, Babylon, I, I know I'm rambling on here, but uh <laughs> Babylon's my favorite movie of the year. Okay. I'm putting my egg in that basket. Babylon is a effing great movie. And it is such an awesome bookend to La La Land. I, 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 I love I loved Babylon. I watched it twice. Well, now I know I, I'm going to watch I it. I seldom ever watch a movie twice. You'll see, my wife is going to watch it. Now I'm going to watch it with her off your recommendation. See that? Oh, Babylon. Well, there's a lot of... Um, topless women in Babylon, so you might like it more than your wife. Yeah, well, it's a movie, right? <laughs> anyway, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me. I know you have a website, BrianThompson.com. How else can people? How can people get in touch with you? Are you on Twitter or anything? Are you doing any of that? I am. Uh, I pop into my Instagram account now and then. Uh, the people that make comments on YouTube. If I've got the YouTube notifications turned on, I will uh, answer. I have answered some of the comments on YouTube. Apologies to the people that I haven't answered. There's a lot of them. So, and it depends on what's going on with, with me, my mood and, and you know, what you're doing that day. I really, really appreciate the comments and and I really, and if somebody wants to make a comment, ask me a question that you think I haven't been asked before. That is thrilling for me. And right. thank you for asking me questions I haven't been asked before. Well, that's great, man. So people, go go check out Brian. Go go, go to his IMDb. I always say, when someone's got over 100 credits on IMDb, that's really cool shit. And you're like, you know they're working. So go look through his stuff. Go see his old roles. I'll go down to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 950 interviews there. You can also email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, it's at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.